Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And when it comes to microprocessors, there are a few names that tend to pop up. Intel is obviously a big one. AMD is another, and those are the two that get talked about when you're discussing stuff like desktop computers, you know, PCs. But when it comes to more lightweight devices, you know, like mobile devices, there's another name, ARM, A-R-M. Recently, news broke that the graphics card company NVIDIA would be acquiring ARM for a staggering $40 billion dollars a princely sum. So I thought it would be a good idea to kind of go on a full rundown on what ARM is, its history, and what this acquisition means for the industry and for people like you and me. And this is going to be a two-parter because ARM has been around for a while and its story is actually really interesting. Plus, it gives me opportunities to go off on crazy tangents and tell you guys how various stuff works, which you know is kind of my jam, as the kids say, you know, 15 years ago. We'll start with some history lessons. Now, typically, when I cover the history of a company or a technology, I run into a few cases where dates may be a little confusing. Sometimes one source will have a specific date for an event that conflicts with a date that's found in another source. And so at that point, I will usually say that uh, I'm sorry, I, I apologize, I can't get too specific. And you would think that ARM wouldn't have this issue. The company isn't that old. We can measure its age in a few decades. But we only go back to the 1980s or so to to look at origins, really the, the late 1970s. And yet, when it comes to particulars, such as which events really got things started for ARM, there's actually a lot of disagreement. So I'm going to give you a, a version of ARM's history, but you know, don't think of this as the definitive version because some people say, no, you shouldn't trace its history to that point. That's silly. Go to this other point instead. Here in the United States, when we talk about the early days of personal computers, the names that typically pop up in those discussions are Apple, Texas Instruments, Commodore, maybe Tandy, and then IBM would follow not too long behind those. But across the pond in the UK, there was another computer company that was trying to get an early part of the personal computer era, and this company was called Acorn Computers Limited. The three co-founders of the company were Chris Curry, Herman Hauser, and Andy Hopper, whom I suppose was just not dedicated enough to go all in with the alliterative names of the other two founders. Way to go, Andy. Chris Curry was born in 1946 in Cambridge, England. He studied math and physics in school and went on to work for various technology companies, including Pi Limited, that's a P-Y-E, not you know, the kind of pie that I love, the Royal Radar Establishment, and Sinclair Radionics. While his stints at Pi and Royal Radar were fairly short, he stuck around at Sinclair for several years. By the late 1970s, 
Curry was interested in developing computers, but he was finding no real support at Sinclair. He had been working on some stuff. He was trying to pitch the idea to Sinclair, but he wasn't finding them very receptive. So we're going to leave off for now with, with Curry and move on, and we'll regroup in a second. Swapping over to Hermann Hauser, who was born in Austria in 1948, he came to Cambridge as a teenager to attend school and learn English, but he really enjoyed it. Uh, he went on to pursue advanced studies in places like Vienna University, but he came back to England, uh, attending King's College in Cambridge and getting an advanced degree there. Smart dude. His work in physics led him to become friends with Curry. And when Curry was ready to start a company to manufacture and market personal computers, Hauser was on board. Andy Hopper was the youngest of the three co-founders, having been born in 1953 in Warsaw, Poland. Hopper studied in London and later Swansea University before pursuing postgraduate studies at the University of Cambridge. He focused on computer science, and he was researching networking technologies. He co-founded a company called Orbis Limited, which focused mostly on networking tech, and this entity would end up merging with Curry and Hauser's efforts to bring Acorn Computers Limited to life, although the original name for the actual company was Cambridge Processing Unit Limited, CPU. Cute, right? But the co-founders decided to use the name Acorn Computers as the trading name for the company, allegedly choosing the name Acorn so that their computers would appear ahead of rival Apple computers whenever it was in an alphabetical listing. One of the earliest jobs that the group had was to develop microcontrollers for fruit machines. And Folks, I consider myself an Anglophile, but when I first read that, I have to admit, I had no idea what the heck it meant. In my imagination, it was some sort of harvesting device that depended on microcontrollers to do something, like pick apples. But no, that of course is not what a fruit machine is, and my guess is there's more than a few of you out there giggling at my ignorance right now. Uh, it's well warranted. So, a fruit machine in this context is what Brits call a slot machine. I guess they do it because of the symbols of fruit that appear on the, the various parts of the slot machine. Uh, so the first big job that this new company had was designing microcontrollers for these gambling machines, these slot machines, to make them more difficult to tamper with as there were some clever hackers who were finding ways to rig big payouts from the machines. And while the machines are designed to take money from you, uh, they don't like the design to go the opposite direction. The house is not a big fan of that. A few years later, the UK launched an initiative to put a computer in every classroom. Acorn Computers secured the contract to provide these computers, to produce them, and it was called the BBC Micro. The Micro used a processor called the 6502. This was an 8-bit processor from Rockwell, uh, though engineers from most technology originally developed the 6502 processor. The 6502 was a low-cost processor that 
totally changed the processor market. It was much less expensive than Intel's 8080 processor at the time, and as such, the 6502 had found its way into numerous technologies in the 1970s, including the Atari 2600 video game console and the Apple II computer systems, among others. The micro contract gave Acorn Computers some momentum. In 1983, the company wanted to free itself from dependence upon processors from other companies. Two computer scientists from Cambridge University, Sophie Wilson and Steve Ferber, became the head designers for the new 32-bit processor. Ferber focused on the actual physical design of the chip's architecture, while Wilson was focusing on the instruction set. The limited resources forced the pair to come up with a simplified approach to processors, and they chose to go with a specific approach to processor design in a category called Reduced Instruction Set Computing, or RISC, R-I-S-C. This is in contrast with Complex Instruction Set Computing, or C-I-S-C, CISC. But what does that actually mean? Well, let's take a step back to understand this. A processor's job is to perform uh, arithmetic and logic operations on data. And this includes basic stuff like, you know, adding and subtracting, kind of like your basic calculator. And it can also involve transferring numbers and comparing different numbers to one another. The data comes in as binary, or that's be zeros and ones. Uh, the processor follows instructions given to it by a program. So the processor gets its instructions, like, you know, add the next two numbers together and then send it on. And then the processor executes that instruction on the supplied zeros and ones that come in. And that's basically what's going on with a processor at a very high level. In addition, we describe the number of operations a processor can complete in a second as its clock speed, which we talk about in hertz. A single pulse of the processor is a cycle. A one hertz processor would only be able to complete a single operation every second. It would be unfathomably slow to us. A decent processor speed today is somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5 gigahertz. That's decent. I'm not talking about top of the line. But that would mean 2.5 to 3.5 billion cycles per second. So the processors in modern computers are pulsing billions of times every second, and each pulse can power an operation. Now, some instructions are pretty simple and they might only require one or two cycles to complete that instruction. Other instructions are more complicated and might have lots more steps involved, and this is where we get to the RISC versus CISC approach. A RISC-based processor handles very simple instructions, so it handles each individual instruction very quickly, like within a cycle. CISC systems can handle much more complicated instructions. The flip side of that is that while a RISC-based processor can execute individual instructions very, very quickly, you might need a lot more instructions to complete your overall task. The CISC approach might take longer to execute a single instruction, but you need fewer instructions overall to complete your task. Now, that is a little confusing, so I'll use an analogy. If I told the typical person, I need you to go outside and check the weather, 
that's a deceptively complicated instruction because there's a lot of other stuff that's nested in that request. For example, if I were to try and tell this to a robot, I might have to include what direction the robot needs to go in, how fast it should move, where the door is, whether that door opens inward or outward, the actual mechanism the robot would have to manipulate to open the door, and so on. So what appears to be a simple task is actually, when you break it down into its individual components, much more complicated. So a program running on a risk-based processor has to break down instructions kind of in that way, in a longer series of simple tasks that add up to whatever your end goal is. But RISC chips are highly optimized, so for certain applications, a RISC-based chip can be ideal. These days, we have a lot of RISC chips and stuff like mobile devices, for example, because these devices are rarely running super complicated software, and they need that low-power, high-efficiency output. One related thing I'd like to mention, though it doesn't tie directly into ARM's history or anything, is what is called the semantic gap. Now remember, when I said that processors take in data in the form of zeros and ones, this binary code is a type of machine language, or the kind of information a machine can actually process. Machines are not able to process information in other forms directly. The information must ultimately convert into machine language, in this case, zeros and ones. And information that we can express pretty succinctly with language and numerals beyond just the ones and zeros, that ends up taking up a lot of space. You have to use a lot of ones and zeros to represent that kind of information. But computers are really good at processing machine code. It happens lightning fast. However, programming computers in machine code is really, really hard. I mean, imagine having to type in a string of tens of thousands of zeros and ones while you're trying to program a machine. And you know that if you make just one mistake, you mess up the whole program because the whole chain is screwed up after that. Heck, if you did make a mistake, it would be really hard for you to track down where you made the mistake in the programming. You would have to compare two different very long sheets of zeros and ones and you'd probably lose your mind. That's one of the big reasons computer scientists have developed various programming languages. The idea is that the programming language is something that's easier for human beings to work with, but machines can't understand programming languages without the use of something called a compiler. The compiler's job is essentially that of a translator. It takes the program that's been written in whatever programming language and converts the instructions into machine code so that the computer can process it. The compiler is essentially a middleman between the program and the processor. We describe programming languages by calling them stuff like low-level or high-level. This refers to how closely the language resembles the machine code. So a low-level programming language is really only a couple of steps away from machine code itself. It's much easier for a compiler to handle that kind of language, but it's much harder to program in. You have to frame your programming closer to machine code but it's still easier than programming instructions in just ones and zeros. A high-level programming language 
is modeled closer to how we would think in terms of a typical language. There are still rules you have to follow, and if you're not familiar with that particular language and you're looking at an example of it, it's not likely going to make a whole lot of sense to you, but it's much easier for humans to work with these kind of languages. However, it's less efficient for compilers to handle that and compile that into machine language. We call this adding layers of abstraction. The programming language provides an abstract platform that represents the various tasks that the processor will ultimately carry out. And the gap between what the programming language says and what the processor does is the semantic gap. CISC and RISC designs deal with this gap in different ways. A CISC design includes a lot of addressing modes and lots of different instructions. A RISC design has a much more simplified instruction set that can meet the requirements of user programs. It's really just two different methods to achieve a similar result. Depending upon the history you read, Acorn Computers slash Cambridge Processing Unit called their RISC-based design Acorn Risk Machines, or they called it Advanced Risk Machines. Most histories say that originally it was Acorn Risk Machines and only later changed to Advanced Risk Machines. But either way, the initialism for this technology became ARM, or ARM. When we come back, I'll talk about how this technology would ultimately transcend the company that spawned it. But first, let's take a quick break. Steve Ferber, Sophie Wilson, and Robert Heaton programmed the initial instruction set for the ARM processor in BASIC. That's a programming language that originated back in 1964. BASIC stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. It's a high-level programming language that, as the name implies, simplifies things for beginner programmers. The Acorn team weren't beginners, but they wanted to keep instructions as simple as possible to optimize the processors. Their first effort yielded the ARM-1 processor. That endeavor took two years of development, with the ARM-1 debuting in 1985, only debuting internally. VLSI Technology, another company, a fabricating company, they actually produced the chip, the working chips. The chip had fewer than 25,000 transistors on it and used a process with a resolution of three microns or micrometers. That's one millionth of a meter. For comparison's sake, Today's Intel processors have more than a billion transistors, and they use a fabrication process with a resolution of just a few nanometers, and a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. So we've definitely come a long way since the early 80s. The team learned a great deal through their experience of developing the ARM-1, and rather than immediately go into production, the design team began to work on refining their product, creating the next generation of processors based on the architecture. They wanted to improve certain processes, and they added instructions for stuff like multiply, and multiply and accumulate. They built in capabilities that would allow the processor to perform real-time digital signal processing, a necessity if they wanted the processor to be able to handle processes meant to you know, generate sounds, for example, which the company considered an important part of a computer's capabilities. 
They increased the number of transistors on the microprocessor from 25,000 from ARM 1 to 30,000 for ARM 2. The team also developed a coprocessor, which, as that name implies, is a processor that can work in concert with the primary processor. Coprocessors typically handle specific tasks. They're meant to kick in when something specific happens, and it offloads those tasks from the responsibility of the primary processor. So this would be kind of like having two people dividing up work among them, and one person handles a subset of chores, and the other person has to do all the rest of the chores. Now, in this case, the coprocessor was powering a floating-point accelerator. Ah, but that leads us to ask, what is a floating-point? Well, I'm sad to be the one to have to tell you this. Please sit yourself down and, and prepare yourself. Computers have a limited capacity. Computing memory is not infinite, and so we have to start making some concessions when we're working with numbers. Now, as you may be aware, some numbers can be really, really big, or really, really small, and they might have a super long, perhaps even infinite number of numbers behind a decimal point. Computers can't cope with that. They have limitations on what they can handle, so we have to make some concessions, and floating points are one of the ways we make concessions. Now, at some point, we have to cut off numbers, and when and where we cut off numbers depends upon what we're doing. So, for example, if we are making a tool like a rake, you know, just an old lawn rake, and you want the handle for this rake to be five feet long, you probably don't actually care if the handle comes out to be four feet, 11 inches and some change, or five foot and a fraction of an inch. That level of precision isn't really important to you. It needs to be five feet-ish. But if it's not exactly at five feet, it's not a deal breaker. But Let's say you're building a transistor for a processor. Well, in that case, you're working in a very, very, very small frame of reference. And so the difference of a fraction of a meter represents a gargantuan difference. On the flip side, you're not likely to ever have to worry about distances of a centimeter. That would be way too big. So you just have to have a way to maintain accuracy relative to what you're doing. You have a different, you know, context for your work. This gets a bit more complicated when you need to work with both really big and really small numbers at the same time. For example, let's say you're a scientist and you're working with Newton's gravitational constant. That is a very small number that starts with a decimal, then you have 10 zeros before you get to the first non-zero number, which is a 6, by the way. You might also be working with the speed of light. That's a very big number. But the computer memory can't really handle number sizes that include that wide a spectrum of numbers. That's why floating points are used. And they're sort of like using numbers in scientific notation. You've got a significant, which contains the digit of the number or the digits of whatever number you're talking about. And you've got an exponent, which tells you where the decimal point needs to be in relation to the first digit in the significant. So if I have a significant of 1.7 and I have an exponent of six, 
it would be the same as if I wrote that number in the scientific notation as 1.7 times 10 to the sixth power, which is the same thing as 1,700,000. These are all just different ways to represent the same value. So 1.7 significant with an exponent of six is 1,700,000. Likewise, if I had a significant of 1.7 and an exponent of negative six, this would be the same as 1.7 times 10 to the negative sixth power, or 0.0000017. By using floating points, we can simplify how we represent numbers without damaging the value of those numbers, and thus get around the limitations of computer memory and how many bits a processor can handle at a single time. We call the operations that processors perform on these types of numbers floating point operations, and we measure it in flops, which stands for floating point operations per second. A gigaflop would be a billion floating point operations per second. Uh, the Japanese supercomputer Fugaku can reach more than 415 petaflops. A petaflop is a thousand million million floating point operations per second. So a petaflop would be a one followed by 15 zeros. Yowza. So the ARM2 architecture included a coprocessor for floating point acceleration, not a full floating point processor, but to accelerate floating point operation uh, calculations, as well as the possibility of adding other coprocessors with the basic ARM architecture. It was kind of a sort of a modular design. This generation was called, fittingly enough, ARM2, and the first product to market that featured the ARM2 wasn't a fully-fledged computer, but rather the ARM development system, which included the ARM processor four megabytes of RAM, three support chips, and some development tools. So essentially, this was a product meant for programmers. It wasn't like it was meant for your average end consumer. Meanwhile, at the company at large, things were not going so super well. Acorn Computers was in a bit of a financial crisis, and an Italian company known for computer systems and office equipment in Europe called Olivetti Ing Essi, and I know I've butchered it, but Olivetti is what it's best known as, it swept in and it acquired the English computer company. At the time, Olivetti was reportedly unaware that within Acorn Computers there were engineers who were working on new processors because the original Acorn Computers were using processors made from other companies. So the acquisition would slow things down a little bit. That's one of the reasons why there was a delay between the development of the original ARM1 processor and an actual Acorn computer system running on an ARM2 processor. However, the day did eventually come around, and that day arrived in 1987. And that is when Acorn computers launched the Archimedes it was a home computer running on an ARM2 processor with a clock speed of 8 megahertz, meaning it would send out 8 million pulses per second. I wish I could say that the Archimedes revolutionized computing right away, but that just wouldn't be true. The delays meant that Acorn Computers was way behind the chief competitor, which in 1987 was IBM, or rather computers running on IBM's design, a.k.a. IBM compatibles. 
While Acorn Computers was working on developing its ARM processor technology, and then afterward as it sorted itself out post-acquisition from Olivetti, the computing world was consolidating behind the IBM-compatible approach. Apple's market share was already heading for decline at this point. The company had released the Macintosh computer in 1984. Steve Jobs had been ousted or had left in a huff. Reports differ on this. IBM had taken aim at dominating the office computer space and then expanded beyond to home computing. But IBM had also made some decisions that allowed some other manufacturers to build machines with essentially the same components as IBM's personal computers and license essentially the same operating system, allowing any company the chance to build their version of an IBM PC, but offer it for a much more competitive price. IBM had effectively set its own course to ultimately withdraw from the home PC market further down the line, though that would take several more years. The point, however, is that the IBM design was firmly entrenched in the market. There were tons of options for machines, and more importantly, there was an enormous amount of software available that had been developed specifically for the IBM design of computers. The Archimedes, a computer with a totally different processor and a different operating system, was just getting started in this market, and there was no enormous library of software to support that system. Sales, as a result, were slow. I mean, what good is a computer if there's no software to run on the computer? You could program your own software, but that sort of approach tends to appeal to you know, a super narrow sliver of the overall computer market. So it would take a few years for programmers to develop software for the ARM architecture and for the Archimedes platform to a point where it could stand as a worthy alternative to the IBM PC. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying the Archimedes was a bad computer. It wasn't. It was just that it was starting at a point where it was at a huge disadvantage to the IBM PC, which had an enormous head start. Meanwhile, the R&D team within Acorn was hard at work at the next generation of ARM architecture, which would be the ARM 3. And man, it is so much easier to follow this naming convention compared to some other technologies, but don't get used to it, because before long things are going to get confusing again. So, the ARM 3 saw further improvements in design, with an on-chip data and instruction cache and a 4 kilobyte capacity of that cache. Oh, and a, a byte is 8 bits, a kilobyte is 1,000 bytes, or really, because of the power of two properties, it's more properly 1,024 bytes. We'll get more into that later. Essentially, this meant that more instructions could load into the pipeline for the processor simultaneously, which sped things up considerably. In addition, the team was able to get a much faster clock speed. The previous generation ran at 8 MHz, but the ARM 3 hit 25 MHz. The first Acorn computers running on ARM 3 technology would launch in 1990. The team also worked to build a version of ARM2 tech that had a lower power requirement than the standard ARM2 processors, and this became known as ARM2AS, little a, big S. This design was aimed at filling a market need for companies that were building lower-cost portable and handheld devices, like communication handsets or portable computers, and the team got as far as developing working prototypes of the chip, but never got to bring it to market. 
One thing that was working really well, however, was the general dedication to RISC-based architecture. The chips required less power than CISC-based systems, and with the right software, they were incredibly powerful and efficient. And they cost much less than the more complicated CISC-based systems did. As a result, more companies were getting interested in developing RISC-based technologies. The ARM family of processors was a clear candidate for that model, but not everyone was keen on the idea of relying on a technology that belonged to a specific computer manufacturer, that being Acorn. There was, however, a solution to this problem, and I'll explain what it was after we return from this quick break. Behind Closed Doors a series of meetings had been pushing the idea of breaking the ARM technology division out of Acorn and into its own entity, its own company. Acorn itself was part of these discussions, and the idea would be that the ARM branch would spin off into a new company, and that company would then develop uh, new ARM technologies, acting as a business-to-business -business enterprise. It would actually fabricate the technologies as well. It would be an original equipment manufacturer, or OEM. That's a type of company that makes products that are used as components in products made by other companies under their own branding. The two other companies that were part of this discussion, in addition to Acorn, were VLSI Technology, that was the company that had fabricated the original ARM1 processor, and, drumroll please, Apple Computers. Presumably, Apple was keen on making use of ARM-based processors, but didn't want to put out computers that could be said to have Acorn computing technology inside them. Spinning off ARM would sidestep that awkward fact. However, there is another explanation that isn't quite so, you know, petty. And this is that Apple had taken a keen interest in the ARM3 processors in an effort to develop computers that could go up against the IBM-compatible 486 generation, but the ARM3 lacked an Integrated Memory Management Unit, or MMU. And as such, Apple felt that the ARM processor design wasn't quite where Apple needed it to be. However, developing a new ARM processor with an integrated MMU was going to be expensive, and Acorn computers just didn't have the resources to do it itself, so it really necessitated a move to an independent spinoff that had more support behind it. So Acorn Computers would supply the design and engineering behind the development of the ARM architecture, primarily in the form of a workforce of 12 engineers. VLSI would supply the fabrication facilities to make physical chips, and Apple would supply the cold hard cash needed to fund the whole thing. That's oversimplifying things a little bit, but generally that's how the arrangement worked. The new company was Advanced Risk Machines Limited, aka ARM Limited. The main goal for the new company was to advance ARM microprocessors. This new company had its fancy schmancy headquarters in a barn in Cambridge, England. Typically with tech companies, I talk about starting out in a garage, but with ARM, it was a barn. And so while our story started in the late 1970s with Acorn Computers, some ARM histories really point to 1990 as the beginning of ARM. I think that ends up skipping some important early work, however. That's just my own personal opinion. Herman Hauser of Acorn Computers slash Cambridge Processing Unit reached out to Robin Saxby to serve as the CEO of this new company. 
Saxby had come from Motorola and had worked closely with Acorn computers back when the PCs the company made were running on Motorola-based chips. The first processor this new company developed was called, wait for it, ARM6. Wait, I'm sorry, wait, hang on, that can't be right. Six? Hang on. Wasn't the last full processor the ARM3? What the heck happened to four and five? Why did we jump to six? What is it with tech companies and the desire to leap over entire numbers when releasing new versions of products? You know, I I wish I had answers for these questions, but my research didn't pull up anything definitive. Now, that's not to say there aren't answers out there. It's entirely possible that there is, and I just missed it. But based on what I could find, there was never any announcement for ARM 4 or ARM 5 as planned commercial products, nor any record of an ARM 4 or ARM 5 processor being produced either as a potential product or even as just an internal prototype. Based on the information I can find, the fourth generation ARM processor was, in fact, the ARM 6, and the new company skipped 4 and 5 for reasons that are beyond my ken, as it were. One thing that definitely shaped the development of the ARM 6 was an intended use for the tech within an ambitious Apple product, the Apple Newton. Now, a lot has been said of the Newton much of it unkind, and for arguably justifiable reasons. The Newton was meant to be a defining example of personal digital assistance, or PDAs. In fact, the story goes that the Apple CEO of the time, John Scully, coined the phrase personal digital assistant to refer specifically to the Newton. It was, in many ways, a precursor to the iPhone, which would debut 20 years after the company had first started working on the Newton. So you could say that the Newton came out 20 years too early, and I think I think a lot of people would agree with you. The Newton had a tablet-style form factor, and it used a touchscreen input with a stylus. Uh, Apple was pushing really hard for a device that could actually interpret handwriting. So theoretically, you would be able to write on the tablet in normal handwriting, and the Newton would interpret each letter and capture it in text on screen. And that was a super cool and innovative idea, and Apple really needed a processor that could power operations without requiring too much juice, because a handheld computing device isn't really that useful if it can only operate for an hour or so before it needs a recharge. With that in mind, the ARM6 microarchitecture began to take shape with lots of decisions in the development guided by the needs of the Newton. The name of the family of ARM6 microprocessors, because there were a few chips that fell under this designation, was the ARM6 macrocell. And I'll give a few of the changes that happened between the ARM3 generation and the ARM6. For one thing, the process had become more precise. The ARM3 microarchitecture used a 1.5 micron process, whereas the ARM6 shrank that down to 0.8 microns. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the individual components on the chip could be made much smaller, which also means you could fit more components onto a microprocessor without having to increase the size of the actual processor chip. 
This falls in line with an observation that Gordon Moore had made decades earlier, where he observed that market influences incentivized companies to develop new ways to cram smaller and smaller components onto a square inch of silicon wafer. The effect of this is that the number of transistors you could find on microprocessors would effectively double every two years or so. Now these days, we tend to reinterpret this to say that a computer's processing power doubles every two years or so due to Moore's law. And it's really more of an observation, but that's a matter for another episode. The point I really want to make is that moving from a 1.5 micron process to a 0.8 micron process is pretty much in line with that observation as the 0.8 micron components were just a little over half the size of the 1.5 micron version found in ARM3 microprocessors. In addition, the ARM6 increased the address space from 26 bits to 32 bits. Address space means the amount of memory that is set aside for a particular computational component like a file or a connected device. Essentially, a computer's processor uses memory addresses in order to access information stored within the computer's actual memory. It's how a processor can pull relevant information for whatever process it needs to perform. The term 26-bit or 32-bit tells us how much memory the system can address. Now remember that a bit is a unit of binary information, either a zero or a one. So each bit can have one of two states, or two values, 0, 1, two states. And you can have 26 bits with a 26-bit system uh, with that older ARM3 address space. And that meant that you had a maximum of 2 to the 26th power number of address spaces. So that meant you could have a maximum of 2 to the 26th power number of address spaces. That translates to more than 67 million values. However, a 32-bit address space knocks this up to 2 to the 32nd power values, and that goes up to nearly 4.3 billion values. So you see how a relatively small increase in bit size can have a much bigger effect. It's not doubling or quadrupling, it's much bigger than that. This meant that the ARM6 could map up to four gibibytes of memory. Gibibytes, I said that correctly. This is a peculiar measurement, right? Because I'm sure you've heard of gigabytes, but this is gibibytes. Gibi, G-I-B-I, means 2 to the power of 30. So a gibibyte means 1,073,741,824 bytes. You can see how saying one gibibyte is more efficient. Isn't that helpful? Anyway, the ARM6 microarchitecture can map up to four of those bad boys in memory. A gibibyte, in case you're curious, is equal to about 1.074 gigabytes. The whole story behind the various binary prefixes, because there's also kibi, mebi, and tebi, and more, all of that is really interesting, but I'll save that for some other episode. The ARM6 was backwards compatible with the old ARM3 architecture. It had a 26-bit mode of operation that it could switch to instead of its 32-bit. This helped avoid making the older software that had been designed for ARM3 systems from going totally obsolete with the release of the new microarchitecture. It had the integrated memory management unit that Apple wanted. It also had some new processor instructions, but I'm not going to go too far into the details as I feel like it would largely be lost and we've got a lot more to say about ARM coming up anyway. 
The first Newton model launched in 1993 with an ARM 610 RISC microprocessor, and unfortunately, it would ultimately be something of a clunker. The chief problem with the Newton was not the fault of the ARM processor, it was that the most anticipated feature, the handwriting recognition capability, just wasn't very good. There were lots of reviews that criticized the implementation of this feature, documenting times when the system performed poorly and just got stuff wrong. Fans of the cartoon sitcom The Simpsons might remember an episode where they made fun of this. The school bully Nelson had one of his cronies take down the note, Beat Up Martin, on his Newton, but the device interpreted it as Eat Up Martha, so Nelson then grabs the Newton and throws it at Martin, thus fulfilling the prophecy. Anyway, the Newton had a troubled launch, which is putting it mildly, and it would transition into a troubled life cycle. The device failed to get a really good hold in the marketplace, even as new versions of the hardware were released. And upon his return to Apple, Steve Jobs would discontinue the Newton in 1998. Meanwhile, over at Arm, CEO Robin Saxby had a brilliant idea. He saw that depending on being a single source of fabrication for the Arm microprocessors is way too limiting. Arm needed more customers and would also need to meet the production needs of those customers. But being a small operation, this was a tough problem to be in. You couldn't easily scale up. The solution was an interesting one. Saxby led the company toward moving to a more intellectual property approach to microarchitecture. So rather than produce the chips themselves, Arm Limited would license the design and instruction sets of these chips out to other fabricators. They would become what is called a fabless chip designer. They didn't produce the hardware themselves. The other chip manufacturers could produce their own ARM microprocessors built on the licensed designs coming from ARM itself. This move would prove to be a game changer for the company. We're going to leave off there for this episode. In our next episode, I'll pick up from that point forward and we'll talk about how ARM evolved uh, over the years and cemented itself as a huge player in the microprocessor space, as well as talk about the acquisition by NVIDIA, or at least the proposed acquisition at the time of this recording, and what that means. If you guys have suggestions for future topics that I should cover on Tech Stuff, reach out to me. You can do so on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.